Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to read the Bible now, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. And we pick it up from Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be here this morning. It is great to be continuing our series in Romans. If this is your first week, we've pushed our way through to chapter 6. We're also doing chapter 7 this morning, so we're looking at a big chunk, but it does fit together nice and neatly, and I'm sure it's going to be uh, relevant to each of us, no matter what we're wrestling with in life. Uh, So yeah, how about we pray just again that God would speak to us. Dear Father God, thank you that you don't leave us alone in this world that you don't just look down on us with a frown at our sin and the way we live and how we disappoint you, but you invite us to draw near. So Lord, we just pray as we draw near to you this morning that you would speak to us, that your spirit would open our, our ears and our eyes to see you clearly and that we might grow into a deeper knowledge of you and a deeper love of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I met a guy a few years ago who used to do trips to Africa, preaching trips. And what he'd do is he'd gather as many church leaders as possible. Now, not uh, church people, not uh, evangelistic missions, but church leaders, their elders, anybody in leadership with their, their wives and families to come along. And he would gather as many people as possible and he said he would preach a message of the gospel doesn't sound too radical so far, but the gospel message he preached, he emphasised the message of grace. And if you were here last week, the whole message about how Christ died for us while we were still sinners, that we did nothing to deserve God's love, but he loved us while we were still rebels and sinners. That's how great his love for us, and through grace, he saves us. And it's in that message, he said, I will have, he says, I'll be preaching to 300 people. Half the people will be in tears. Tears of joy. Just, this is such a refreshing message, they said. A burden has been lifted from them that God accepts them even though they're sinners. And people were just overwhelmed with joy and tears would roll down their face. But he said the other half of the people were red and building up with sweat. They were fuming. They were angry. 
angry at this message. And after the service, they would be lined up to talk to him, to say, you will not be allowed back into this area again, this town again, never in our church with a message like that. And after the first person talked to him, he realised why. He said, if you go preaching a message like that, and this is around different parts of Africa, he said, our young people will just go wild. Can you imagine a message of grace that you can do whatever you want because God's grace is going to cover all your sins? They would just go wild. They'd go rampant. We can't control our young people as it is. We need law. We need rules. We need a bit of the fear of God or else we're going to lose control of the whole next generation. It's like, wow. That's amazing. It's like this, this divide within the churches about how they understand the gospel and how do you apply grace in light of us being sinners? How do we deal with sin? Yet the fear of, with the message of grace, that we would do whatever we want, because whatever we do, God's grace is so big that's going to cover our sin. Or do we need rules and regulations to, to stop us from sinning, to be good enough, to show God that we're genuine and serious? So we enforce the law, a bit of the fear of God, to make us obey him. And as I was thinking about the dilemma of those communities in Africa, I realised, actually, I think for most of us Christians, we have that dilemma in our own hearts. See, how do you deal with sin in your life? What are those voices that come into your head about when you're doing the wrong thing before God, and you know, that's what sin is, that we don't live a life that's pleasing to him. We think about other people like we shouldn't, we say things about other people like we shouldn't. We click on things like we shouldn't. Our heart goes many different ways than towards God. How do we deal with that? Is the voice saying inside your head, oh, it doesn't matter, sin is a soft thing, you can live with it because God's grace is bigger that God doesn't really care about it. Or do you take the approach of, hang on a minute, I'm not, I've lost sight of the rules. I need to get back to the law, the rules, the regulations. I need to put up more boundaries, more fences, and that'll overcome, the, uh, overcome sin, and that'll get me on the right track. If you're honest, I think we all have that battle, either one or the other, or sometimes both, and even sometimes both in the same day, how we wrestle with sin and doing the things that we know displeases God. See, what Paul goes on to say in this couple of chapters is actually... They're both wrong. They're both, both a misunderstanding of applying grace, a misunderstanding of how we deal with sin in our lives, and in fact, there's something else to the gospel we need to hold on to. There's something deeper that we need to draw near to God through this to actually see what the, the richness and fullness of the gospel and how we live with sin in our lives. He goes on, I said we're going to go through two chapters, but the, the main message is in these first opening verses <clears throat> where he talks about chapter 6, verse 2. He says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, don't you know that all of us who are baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his uh, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
This idea of being baptised into Jesus means you are one with Jesus or you are united with Jesus. Next week we're uh, having some infant baptisms and we'll be using the language that you are united in this church, you're one of us. This is the same principle with Jesus. If you're baptised into Christ, you're baptised into his death, you, you, he was dying your death and to raise to life. You're baptised with him, you are, your body... You, spiritually you're with him through the resurrection he goes on to say just picking out a few verses uh, in verse 7 anyone who has died has been set free from sin now not just the idea of Jesus died 2,000 years ago for us but even death frees us from sin I was reminded of a story of uh, a young man who was struggling with uh, his sinful desires his lustful desires and his temptations were everywhere his the heart was steering him towards his lusts so he approached an old pastor and retired pastor and says look I'm struggling with these desires these passions of my heart tell me when will I be free from them when will they settle down and the old pastor replied to him well I wouldn't trust myself till I was dead for three days it's like while I'm alive sin is always active it's not till I die, sin will have no power over me. My desires will have no power over me. This is what Paul's saying. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Sin will no longer have your heart. Not only that, Paul says in verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in God, in Christ Jesus. You might have heard the language of being born again. That when you're a Christian, your old self died with Jesus at the cross, but through the resurrection, the new self rose again. That you're a new person, a new life. You've been born again through Jesus. Sin has no, no longer got its grip on you. It died in the tomb. But yet through the resurrection, we have new life, a new freshness. This is something we need to dwell on. Because it's something we can easily pass over. Oh yeah, it's another visual picture imagery to help us understand what happened at the cross. But it's much more than that. In fact, Paul's going to give us two pictures of how to understand that in the depths of what this means. <clears throat> he goes on to talk about having a new master and he uses the imagery of slavery. So picking it up in verse 16, he says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as an obedient slave, or obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now you've got to remember, this was written nearly 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, like, that was like the world at that time. It's estimated there was over 120 million people lived in the Roman Empire and over half of them were in slavery. But when we think slavery, we shouldn't think, uh, you go back to the American slavery, where it was very br brutal and harsh and, and just was always oppressive. It wasn't always like that. So there's two ways you'd enter into slavery. One is that you are an enemy of Rome and you are conquered and then captured and then put into slavery. You are forced into slavery. The other way, though, is because of the great divide between the rich and the poor, if you were living in poverty and you no longer could supply food and shelter for your family, let alone yourself, you could move your family into slavery doesn't always mean a bad thing, but it does mean you 
what he's saying. You give yourself to someone as obedient slaves. You obey them, but in return, they will look after you. It's almost like an extended family. They will give you shelter. They will give you food. They will give you security that way. But you've sold yourself to them. You no longer belong to yourself. You belong to them, but at least that's a good move. So many people did that. This is a scenario Paul puts up. You can imagine, if you were to give yourself as a slave to someone, then there's, uh, you want to give yourself to a, as a slave to become their servant, to live under their household. You want to choose well, don't you? And let me just fill out this picture a little bit, that you would go to a wealthy area, somebody who can afford to, to maintain people under their roof, that you would uh, go to the, the places with the big properties, the big mansions, the big front gates, and you would go, maybe this place is rich. I wonder how I would be treated if I was a slave in that place. And the image go, what happens if you went to the gate with the big flashing lights, the big LED lights? It looks so impressive, the big walls. Yeah, this looks amazing. And on the front gate, it, the, the, the estate is called Sin. But that doesn't put you off because it's in pretty lights and LED lights and it looks awesome. So you peek over the fence and what do you see in this estate? You look for the master. What does the master look like? Actually, I can't see a master. Uh, It looks like everybody's doing their own thing. What are the people doing? They all look busy and working hard and pursuing things. They all say, no, there's no master here, but yet they're driven by, on one corner, there's all this gold and they're pursuing wealth. I want it, I need it, I can have it, I'm going to chase it. And they leave their own families behind and they're all fighting and working hard to pursue money and wealth and gold. Even if their pockets are full of gold, they want more, they can't get enough. And that's what sin does, doesn't it? He says to you, oh no, you can be your own master. Sin's not your master, you be your own master. You're always in control. But then your heart gets led by that into a particular way and go, oh, I want this, I need this, I need to give up everything I can to have this. So some are pursuing wealth. Others are working hard to fulfil their sexual desires. They're driven by that, and they'll do whatever they can to pursue fulfilment in there. But they're never fulfilled. They're always chasing more and in different ways. Others are pursuing popularity, affirmation. So they're all walking around taking their photos, going, look how many likes I've got. I've got a million followers. But they want more. It's never enough. So they're all working hard. They're all pushing each other aside to, aside to, to build themselves up. They're sacrificing their families, their friends, even their spouses to chase what their heart's desiring. Oh, no, we have no master, but they're mastered by their desires. They're mastered by sin. And he says, I look over that fence, and where do I see those people ending up in death? There's no good outcome with that. You end up in death. What's happening in the estate next door? The estate next door has a big sign, it's a plain gate, and it's got the sign on the front says righteousness. And I look over the fence of righteousness and I see the master. The master doesn't have a whip, he's not yelling at his people, he's just, actually people are busy serving him. Not because he's heavy handed on them, but because they love to serve him. They seem happy. They're not only serving him, but they're serving each other. They're serving their families. They're serving those around them. And that delights the master. So whatever they're doing is bringing fulfillment to him and they're growing in righteousness. They're not being self-centered and selfish. They're growing in righteousness as well. And the master gives them eternal life. 
There's no death here. Everybody seems like they're growing in righteousness, growing with those people around them, sharing stuff with their families, bringing joy to the master, and he brings joy to them. It's like these two, these, if you had a choice, who are you going to submit to? What master are you going to become a slave to? Slave of sin, slave to righteousness. Actually, there's another bit of the story. You actually don't have a choice because you weren't born into freedom. If you're here last week, you would have heard Adam's just, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote this, just been uh, telling us about we've been born unto Adam, under sin. If you're born into a household of slavery, you're the owner of that master. And we've all been born under Adam, in sin. And this is where we, where we are. We are slaves to our heart's desires, hearts, slaves to our addiction, slaves to our drives. We want more, we're never satisfied, and we're destined to death. Now there's only one, two ways to get out of slavery. One is the master decides to sell you. He could choose to do that, but sin will never let you go. Sin never lets you go. Or you die. The only way to get out of this mess is that we actually die free from the, the rule and oppression of the master of sin. And this is what Paul says happens. Remember we saw in the opening verses? Don't you know that all of us who are baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We therefore have been buried with him through baptism into, into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of our the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. We're saying, remember that thing Jesus did? That was the old you. You died. You were in slavery under the master of sin, but you died. You're no longer in that. You have new life. Notice what Paul's saying here. It's not that, uh, aren't we fortunate that Jesus died in our place so we can have life? It's actually much more than that. The old you died. Feel the weight of that. The old you who was mastered by sin is dead through what Jesus did on the cross. We were baptised with him. We were united with him. We died with him the old self, and the new self. We've been born new in Christ Jesus. So what does Paul say after explaining this thing about sin in chapter 6? He goes on in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. You're not on the slaves to sin side now. You're in, under the master of righteousness you reap holiness, and the result is eternal life, not death. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That was what was going to happen when you were a slave to sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, this is the difference. Now, if we go back to the question, why would we keep sinning? Why wouldn't we keep sinning? He says it's like you've, been, you've died to the old self. You've been freed from the slavery of sin. You've been given new life, righteousness, eternal life. It's like having a peek over the fence back into the side of sin. I can hear the, the loud music and the bright lights. I can see the glittery gold, the sexy people, the, the fame and the fortune. I think I can have a bit of that. I think I can 
dig my way under the fence and go back in. I can control my sin, I can have what I want and I can duck back in on God's side. Paul's saying, you don't know what you do. It's ridiculous that you would do that. You've got everything you need from a God who loves you, a God who saves you, a God who dies with you and gives you new life. Why would you go back to the old ways? Why would you go back? That's the example of slavery. Here's the exa- uh, another example of marriage. It goes on in chapter 7. <clears throat> Do you not know? The law has authority over someone as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as she is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relationships with another man <clears throat> while, she's with her, while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. I know that's very wordy, uh, and, but this is the same applies to us. When we commit for marriage, we make vows to each other. I love and cherish you. For richer, for poorer, I'm with you. Till death do us part, I'm with you. See how the principle still applies. I'm making vows, I'm with you. The only thing that's going to separate us, not richer or poorer, not sickness or in health, the only thing that's going to separate this is till death separates us. Now how that works out in a good marriage is that there is a sense of handing over ourselves, a bonding of two become one. So there is this trust that is built, this unconditional love where we feel safe with each other, vulnerable with each other, and there's an openness with each other. We can drop down our guards and be ourselves, and that's where we find real intimacy and connection with each other because we're in a safe place, not judged but accepted and loved. He says this unconditional love is what we want. It's unconditional love where you will choose to give up your freedom and your independence. It's unconditional love where you'll give up uh, your rights to go, it's all about me and see uh, my duty and obligation is for the other person because you love them. You do anything for them to bring them joy. You get joy out of making them have joy. You be happy because they're happy. So you want to please that person. Serve that person. Do things. Because that's the experience where you're accepted like no other place in the world. But there's two kinds of marriage Paul's talking about. This marriage, how it was intended to be. But the example he's talking about here is like being married to the law. The law's a hard person to to deal with in a relationship. See, it's interesting that he chooses marriage because it's often... uh, it's We tend to be judges of those closest to us. It brings out something inside of us. So we judge our our spouse or even our kids more than we judge anybody else. It brings out the lawyer in us. And, you know, judging, uh, being married to the law, it's like having the spouse who says, you need to know rules. So as your spouse, I'm lovingly going to tell you, these are the rules. I'm lovingly going to tell you, I'm going to remind you of the rules. I'm lovingly going to tell you whether you pass or fail the rules. You know what I'm talking about. It usually comes out when you're driving in the car, right? Do you know the speed limit? 
What speed are you going? Are you going to do something about that? It's, it's, it's the law that comes outside of us. It's not grace, it's law. And in that environment, if you've seen a marriage that has somebody with this characteristic, the marriage has an environment of control, inflexibility, with threats, with punishment and fear. Married with the law involved gives it unrealistic expectations. It demands perfections and it demands that you perform. And there's only two categories, whether you're perfect or you fail. And you're always reminded about it. It's performance, what you do or don't do, how you disappoint, how you're discouraged. It kills relationships, it kills marriage, and it kills the joy out of life in a marriage that's built on that. And the person ends up being burdened and oppressed and asking the question, I gave up my freedom and independence for this? I made vows till death do us part for this? It's what Paul says. If you're married to the law, they're not gonna let you go unless there's a death in the family. There is no divorce, there's death. And this is what Paul goes on to say. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. We want to say, I want to say, oh, it's good. Jesus died to the law. The law has no power. The law's dead and gone. It's buried. No, no. The law's not going to let you go. The law's been around for generations, been around for hundreds of years, been around for thousands of years. The law won't go away. But unless you die, you won't find freedom. Remember what Paul says, back to our original verses. Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin but alive in Christ Jesus. There was a death in the marriage. And it was us. It was the old us. But the old us has died. And the new us has now been set free from that burden. And what Paul goes on to say in that relationship, uh, following on from verse 4, he says, So, brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. We've given up the old marriage. We have a new and better marriage to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. This might weird out a few of the blokes in our heads with this imagery, but it is a helpful metaphor. We're died to, our, died to the law, the abusive partner. We're now married to Jesus, the one who died with us, the one who gave us new life, the one who lives through grace in the relationship. And did you get that last bit? In order that we might bear fruit. What does the law do? It oppresses you. It pushes you down. You can't do that. You're a failure. But what does Jesus do in his relationship? I want you to be fruitful. I want you to thrive. I want you to grow. He encourages us to be the person that that we want to be. That spouse. When you know who Jesus is and what he's done for you, when you know the Heavenly Father, that he loved you so much that he gave his only son to bear the death, then you realise, I want to know him. I want to draw near to him. 
I delight when he is pleased. So I serve him willingly. I sign up to be the, the obedient because I delight when he's delighted. I'm joyful when he's joyful. I'm happy when he's happy. That's the way a relationship should work. The law was never going to be a relationship that was going to do that for you. But a true relationship with God will do that for you. Paul says that this is a, it's a spiritual metaphor for your life. Like being married to the law will only give you a relationship based on rules, performance, fails, how you, remind you how you fail. It's going to be the death of your relationship. You're going to kill all the joy out of your life. It doesn't work. But a, but a relationship with God uh, is so much better. But we have to die to our old selves. We have to let it go. We have to let it go so that we might bear fruit for God. Now, if you compare those two marriages, he's going... Tell me again why you want to turn back to your old self of sin. It's like, why would you go back to your old lover, the abusive one, the oppressive one that was killing you? Why would you want to turn back to sin? Why wouldn't you want to focus your energy on your new love, the one you delight in? Because that's what's going to give you joy. That's what's going to give you fulfillment. And that's what's going to give you eternal life. Why would you go back to the old partner? Two very powerful images, aren't they? Of being a slave, of, of marriage. Two very powerful images. I think mainly because what it is, is it's an all-of-life picture. It's not just, oh, here's a choice that you do for a job or what you do on the weekends. This is all of life we're talking about. And it impacts all of life. See, what he's talking about is we have a new life in an old body. This is the difficulty, isn't it? We know what we want to do. We want to have the new life. We want to draw near to God. But we're still living in the old body that still has its old ways and draws, drawn to the old temptations. The theological term for this is that we are in Christ, we're growing in sanctification. It's like growing in our likeness of Christ. That we are in a process of change because it doesn't just click your finger and all of a sudden I've got new life and my sin is no, no longer a problem for me. And what we try and do, because we've got the new life in the old bodies, is we try and win those battles ourselves. That we try and overcome sin ourselves. You know the attitude? I'm okay with what I think or what I say or what I click on because I'm in control. Sin's not going to master me. I'm master of it. I can just leave it at any time. But if we're honest, to answer the question, well, how are we going with that? Because sin is a master and you can't stop whenever you want. It'll keep going. Or even if we have the attitude, well, I can defeat sin. I have power over it. I can control my sin because of the law. I put up rules and regulations. I know when I cross the line and if I fail, I put up more. How are you going with that? Are you finding freedom in the law? Are you finding freedom through rules and regulations? Or is it just burdening you, showing you where you fail, where, why you don't deserve life? Because that's what the law does. It kills it out of you. It's only dying to our old self through Jesus on the cross and realising we've given a new life, a new chance, a new identity. 
with Jesus. That's where we find joy and freedom. This is a description of the new life. Tim Keller has a helpful imagery within this battle of, of doing, I want this new life, but I'm still in my old body. He tells a story of a country that's lived under the oppressive regime. A regime of rulership, there's a key ruler that's in power, and he's oppressed the people for years, for generations. They've been beaten. They live in poverty. They've got nothing. They fight for, for the scraps. But another, a neighbouring nation, a good nation, comes in with their army. They defeat the oppressive um, regime. They take over the capital city. They take over the parliament house. They take over the rulership. Victory has been won. That there's now a good leader that's been put in place with good rulership, with the army around. And all of a sudden, the burden off the people is freedom. They can now start enjoying life. They start serving each other, loving each other, and now life is real life under them. But if you've seen this in practice, it never works as sweet as people want. See this in the Middle East. You can come, you can take over the rulership, but what happens to the old regime? It goes underground, goes out to the villages. It's still there. It still raises its head. They still try and cause trouble. They're no longer in charge. They no longer have control, but they will still try and cause trouble. He says that's the story of the Christian life. Under Jesus, we've got a new ruler, a new master, a new husband. We're under new management. We have a new life. We're a new country, a new person. But sin is in our old body. It's been there for years. We're born into it, remember. And it will always try and fight you. It will always try and cause disruption with the new leadership. It will always be there. So we have this tension, this battle. We are new people with a new leader. But the sin still tries to tempt us. Paul describes it like this. We get to this end of chapter 7. It's a real dilemma for him. Uh, lots of repetition, lots of uh, thinking on the run from him it seems. And I feel like... I feel like I could have written this because it's just so, what do I do? What am I thinking? Let me explain. He says, for I know that good itself does not dwell within me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, it keeps on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that's living in me that does it. You following this? I want to go this way, but my body's saying I want to go that way. What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a couple of big things to notice here. This is the Apostle Paul who was confronted by Jesus himself. He still battles sin. He's not rid of sin, which I think is uh, an encouraging, discouraging. I'd love to say no sin in your life. But in reality, we're all going to have sin always there in our old self. It's not going to go away. But notice how Paul feels about this. Did you feel the grief about his sin, the disappointment? Never does he say, oh, because I'm a failure because of the law. I've disappointed because of the law. It's because I haven't lived the way God wants me to. I live to please him. I delight in pleasing him. But I know I'm doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing. I'm grieved over that. 
That's very different. This is when you want to live to please your spouse, but you do something dumb to disappoint them. Not because they're ruling oppressive, but because you love to delight them and you disappoint them. This is what Paul's talking about. But he's not because of the law. I need to do better. I need to eliminate sin for God to love me and accept me. He says, no, no, I'm a wretched man. I'm still in my old body. Who will rescue me from being a subject of death? That's right, Jesus has rescued me. Remember those opening verses? I died with him. I rose with him. I have life in him now. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord because he's a God of grace. He's a God of acceptance. Doesn't demand perfection but he loves love and obedience that you come to him. This is the tension we have. That if we're grieved that we're not pleasing our father, not because of rules, but because that sin is still there. The idea of sanctification is that we grow into it. That we need to be aware of it, we need to address it, we need to take sin seriously, but it's not a pass-fail. His love for you is guaranteed. Grace is guaranteed. Eternal life is guaranteed. We just need to draw near to him to experience that love, security, where we can be vulnerable. We don't have to pretend we're people we're not, but we can be vulnerable with him and be safe because that's where we find true intimacy, even with God. I want to pray now for all of us that no matter where you are in your journey, If you're here today and you're not sure about this God thing, you're not sure about this Jesus thing, I hope today's been helpful in some way to go, he's a real God, somebody we can really know with a real relationship and it does change your life. But even if you're a Christian, no matter where you are, from a new Christian, Christian 80 years, I know we're still battling with sin. And I hope that God will help us to draw us near to him so we can see that, identify it, and live lives that please him. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your love for us, that you would send your son Jesus to die for us, not just die in our place, but he died with our old self. Our old self that was mastered by sin, mastered by law and rules and oppression, has died the death when Jesus went to the cross. And when he rose again, that we are made new. We are born again with a new chance, with a new master, with a new husband, with a new God. Lord, thank you for accepting people like us, sinners. But Lord, we confess to you if we're honest, we are broken in our sin. We are frustrated that we can't overcome it. We are annoyed at ourselves. We disappointed ourselves that we, we aren't the people we want to be. We aren't the people that live to please you. But Lord, as we sit here, Lord, we confess to you that we want to be those people. We want to delight in you to grow in our righteousness, to grow in our fruitfulness to you, to thrive under you. But Lord, help us to cling to you. Lord, give us your spirit to hold us close. Help us to draw near to you in dependence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.